S-K-I-N-S.com. You just went to Folsom Street Fair and you don't have enough leather? Go see Under. Everything is handcrafted and understated quality. Fine leather handcrafted goods for all of your needs. He also does fixes. Maybe you love that jacket. He'll put the zipper back in. Talk to Under at SkinOnSkins.com at 20th and Mission. Check him out at SkinOnSkins.com. LSD, fap, acid, fapping, fapping, and acid, acid, fapping, fapping, and acid, fap, 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 acid. Thank you. That song is called Acid and Fapping. What is flat black plastic? What could it be? It's exactly what you think it is. Flat black plastic. Vinyl. Records. Round. Played. Mixed. All for you every Saturday from noon to two by Scotto. Amazing artist, music DJ, vinyl enthusiast. That is flat black plastic. This is Tuchel Matters with Mutiny Radio. Big up to the number one station, the ruling nation. Give it to me every time. My name is Breakfast. And I'm running for Chancellor of the United States of America. For too long, we have gone without a Chancellor who is willing to take bold leaps of faith and logic to create new possibilities for our great, big, fat nation. As your Chancellor, I will balance the budget on the head of a pin, give entertaining speeches, have scandalous affairs, write strongly worded letters to unpopular foreign leaders, good on camera, end all hunger, crime, abuse, war, disease, disasters, sadness, depression, oppression, repression, suppression, transgression, obsession, expression, impression, regression, and digression by signing pieces of paper that express my disapproval of such things, and invest in an American flag pin to be worn prominently on my stylish jackets. It's time to work together to take the country back from us and return it to ourselves. It's time to turn this country around and drive it into opposing traffic. It's time to take a chance on the Chancellor. Just crossed my mind 
had more hard luck than most men could stand. The mines was his first love, but never his friend. He's lived a hard life, and hard he'll die. Black lungs done got him. His time is nigh. Black lung, black lung, you're just biding your time. Soon all this suffering I'll leave behind. But I can't help but wonder what God had in mind to send such a devil to claim this soul of mine. He went to the boss man, but he closed the door. Well, it seems you're not wanted when you're sick and you're poor. You're not even covered in the on the favors of man. Down in the poorhouse on starvation's plan, where pride is a stranger and doomed is a man. His soul full of coal dust till his body's decayed. And everyone but black lung done turned him away. Black lung, black lung, oh, your hands I see cold. As you reach for my life and you torture my soul, cold as that water hole where 
I've spent my life's blood digging my own grave. Down at the graveyard, the boss man came with his little bunch of flowers. Dear God, what a shame. Take back those flowers. Don't you sing those sad songs. The die has been cast now. A good man is gone. And good morning, everybody. This is the B, a.k.a. Bill Morgan. You're listening to Mutiny Radio, coming at you from 2781 21st Street here in San Francisco, in the heart of the mission. The program is Labor and Love, a program where we tell you how it is if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. You don't have a place at the table, the negotiating table that is where you work. You're on the menu. And never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. When I say labor, I mean you. Labor and Love Radio where the labor meets the road. Good morning, everybody. It's a beautiful day. Well, bright here in the mission. Sunny, but maybe a little chill on it. I myself am just in the process of moving into the mission, so I'll be a few, few moments walk from mutiny. Come on down to Mutiny Radio. This is where it's happening. When the COVID hit and people stopped coming into Mutiny to sit and listen to our comedy shows, our station manager, Pam Benjamin, moved them outside. So now you can you can have our comedy shows outside in the fresh air we've got videos we've got art installations we've got a radio show as you well know if you're listening to this and we've got comedy mutiny is kind of the underground capital of the alternative comedy scene here in san francisco every year we uh our station manager, Pam Benjamin, throws a festival. People come from all over the United States to come and sharpen their chops and listen to others sharpen theirs. <laughs> okay, so we had that first set, which... You know, kind of defines what we're about here on Labor and Love Radio. We had the Grateful Dead singing the song Casey Jones. 
and the jury's kind of out on Casey Jones. In some versions, he's a union scab during a railroad strike. In others, he's a heroic engineer who risks his life to bring the train in on time or something like that. In this one, he's high on cocaine. Then we had a a song that celebrates, celebrates, no, observes a tragic anniversary, March 26, 1911, the Triangle Shirtwaist disaster where hundreds of young women were trapped in a shirtwaist factory several floors up off the street. And uh, because they're the owners of the factory had refused to sign a contract with the uh, International Lady Gu- Ladies' Garment Workers' Union. The doors were locked. The exit doors were locked. And when a thrown-away cigarette started a fire, the women were trapped. Several women jumped to the jumped to their death, and the, you know, one of the reporters who at the time was watching couldn't do much else, still recalls the sign, the sound of the, the young women's bodies hitting the, the pavement as they leapt to their death. And then Hazel Dickens from West Virginia with her Black Lung song, one of the uh, great one of the great injustices done to the American worker, and there are so many, was sending them down into the coal mines, some very young to catch black lung from the dust at uh, the mining of coal. What do we got for you today? Let's take a look. We got our radio labor feature. We got labor history in two. We got an article um, about the Bessemer, the Bessemer election as uh, workers try to uh, form a union one of the first unions, in fact, the first union in the United States with uh, Amazon. Uh, A lot is riding on that. About uh, 5,800 workers, 85% of whom are black, have the chance, have the choice to vote for a union or not. And read a little bit about that. And then uh, one that I like love to play, Hispanic workers walking off their job. We'll get to that. Who was Jovita Ibar? Somebody we should know about. And we have our labor history in two minutes. And we'll have our call from our campus correspondence. Vita in Yemen. 
and we're going to discuss uh, the vaccine, COVID vaccine. Uh, somehow, our leaders, our business people, insist on getting back to work or getting workers back to work. Acting as if the COVID is over. Well, gee, there are only 77,000 new cases yesterday. Does that sound like it's over? Not to me. Death rates have slowly been going down, but again, people show complete disregard for some people for the, the crisis we're going through. Some people figure it's more important to go to the beach and party or go to baseball games. Uh, the Texas Rangers are going to start their season and fill up their stadium. Talk about a super spreader event. You know what? 40,000 people, 50,000 people gathered together in a ballpark. What percent of them will wear masks? Anyway, our campus uh, correspondents are going to uh, give their opinions about the, uh, the COVID and the vaccine, especially. There's a lot of resistance to the vaccine. I wonder why. Can it be that Populations of color and poor whites have been guinea pigs for the uh, medical science government falange. Mm -hmm. Have to see about that. This is Labor and Love Radio, and uh, let's see what we got going. Radio Labor. We're also going to celebrate today the life of uh, one of the great union leaders in uh, U.S. history or in any history, a man named Cesar Chavez. Here's Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, April 2nd, 2021. I'm Mark Belanger. In the report this week, a special program about the plight of garment workers in Bangladesh and what a union is doing to help them. Plus, the Labor Start report about union events and singing. For every stitch of clothing, someone sweats away This is Radio Labor. These are the women we are talking about who are pulling their legs and fighting to have their union boys that brought peace, who are fighting to have a safe workplace, who are fighting to have a gender violence free workplace. 
you had the, a company of, that is sourcing its product from there and has witnessed those conditions, I just honestly, from my upbringing, I just don't know how anybody goes to bed with a clear conscience. Garment workers in Bangladesh are employed in dangerous jobs which don't even pay them a living wage. The country has 4,000 factories which employ about 4 million workers, mostly young women. In an attempt to help the workers and their families, the United Steelworkers has released a report which traces the connections between companies in Canada and specific factories in Bangladesh. The report is called Not Even the Bare Minimum. To find out more about the report and the situation in Bangladesh, I talked to Kalpona Aktor and Ken Newman. Ms. Aktor is the president of the Bangladesh Garment and Industrial Workers Federation and executive director of the Bangladesh Center for Workers' Solidarity. Mr. Newman is the Steelworkers National Director for Canada. I reached Ms. Aktor in her office in Bangladesh and asked her to describe the workers the report focused on. They're basically factory workers who produce clothes for these brands. They are sewers, like machine operators, who sew the clothes. These are the young female workers who are making clothes in those factories. Majority of them young female workers. These are the young female workers who had a dream. They came from the countryside and they had a dream that when they come to the city and get the job, and these jobs will change their life, okay? Uh, they will have respectable wages, they will have a good life. But when they come into the city and getting a job in the factory, their dream never comes true. They're ending up their life with a poverty wages jobs. The minimum wage is, you know, $105, kind of close to that, a month, which is not enough for one person, full month cost, let alone if they have children in the family. These women pulling their life in this long shifting hour in those factories, they don't have any savings, nor they do have a house, which we can call a decent house. These women workers, over 30% of their wages for their housing only, it's a rental house. It's not a dream house. It's like 10 by 10 concrete room. Sometimes they don't have windows. These are the women export income for the country. Like 80% of our export income coming from this garment industry. But these, these women's life is not safe. The report about the Bangladeshi garment workers is entitled Not Even the Bare Minimum. It was commissioned by the Humanity Fund of the Steelworkers in Canada. Ken Newman is president of the fund, as well as being the Steelworkers National Director for Canada. I asked him what the report, Not Even the Bare Minimum, does. First of all, what the report does is that we've been able to identify Pacific garment factories in Bangladesh that supply five different Canadian retailers. You've got Hudson's Bay Company, you've got Joe Fresh, you've got Marks, you've got Nygaard, and you've got Lululemon. And what the report shows is that the women who sew our clothes are earning only 6 or $7 per day. And I say not per hour, this is per day. And in our view, that isn't even enough, not nearly enough even in Bangladesh for a worker to have a decent life or to pay for reasonable housing, nutritious food, transportation, clothing, children's education, health care, and all the other essentials. To try to say something for 
a future for a rainy day. So that's what has come out of this report. We see that some of these workers are just uh, living, not, not having a living wage. That's why this report is important. What are you asking companies to do? Well, first and foremost, we're asking Canadian garment brands and retailers to, first of all, publicly acknowledge that they have a responsibility for workers in their global supply chains. And there are two urgent things that we're asking the Canadian brands that they can do immediately. The first one is to make an explicit public commitment that they will ensure that their suppliers pay workers their full wages and benefits through this pandemic. And secondly, is that they commit to contributing to what is called a Global Severance Guarantee Fund that will ensure workers are never left penniless when they lose their jobs. This means that they would be entering into a legal binding agreement to pay a premium price of 1.5% on each garment that's ordered. So that's really what we're asking the Canadian companies to make a commitment to immediately up front. Why did the Steelworkers commission the report, and why are you concerned about workers in Bangladesh? Well, Mark, you know, the Steelworkers have a long history on international solidarity, and our union was the first one back in in the mid-'80s where we established a dedicated labor fund to support worker and human rights around the world. You know, we understand that workers' rights around the world are interconnected. Garment workers' struggles for their rights are connected to our own struggles here in Canada. And I can tell you that on a personal note, Mark, I actually visited uh, Bangladesh one year after the anniversary of the Rana Plaza tragedy. And I can tell you that this has had a lasting impact on me uh, going forward. Uh, I have witnessed many things in my career, the trade union movement or even my upbringing. And to witness what I've witnessed after the one-year anniversary of the collapse of Rana Plaza and to be there... For the first time, the families were allowed to the site. And to see what I've seen is it just brings tears to your eyes. Here with his report about union events is Labor Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. Each day, Labor Start's volunteers collect hundreds of news items about the struggles of workers and their unions from around the world in 36 languages. Here's a small sample of their work. Our top story section included links to coverage of the huge impact that the global labor rights campaign and the coordinated strikes against Deliveroo had on that company's initial public offering this week, the death of a center of trade unions of Myanmar youth leader at the hands of Myanmar's military, and the assassination of yet another trade union leader in the Philippines. One story that has had a long, perhaps way too long, life on our news pages is the rising level of repression aimed at civil society in general and trade unions in particular. Unions, with their mass base and institutional resources, and rooted in the inactivity work, which is by every standard essential, are proving once again to be the foundation on which progressive political change is built. A quick scan of today's news stories on our main page confirms this. In just a few hours this morning alone, news stories about the targeting of unions and union activists in Hong Kong, Belarus, the Philippines, Myanmar, India, Cambodia, Fiji, Eswatini, and Turkey have been posted to our site. In most cases, authoritarian governments are using state power to reinforce employer-led attacks on workers' rights 
or to destroy trade unions as a center of anti-regime organizing. In others, either the regime, as in Belarus and Myanmar, or paramilitary forces suspected of links to security forces and employers, as is the case in the Philippines, target trade union activists for threats, assault, and murder. That we continue to see union-related stories from these and other countries is a tribute to the courage of workers struggling to win a better life for themselves and for their communities. For our Working Women page, our volunteers found news of the innovative tactics developed by the Domestic Workers Union in El Salvador when dealing with disputes, a Canadian union that is targeting women in a new workplace safety campaign, and the challenges faced by 96 million precariously employed Indian women. Our photo of the week is of a march in support of progressive labor law reform in Spain that would address the problems laid bare by the pandemic. Current campaigns that we are running at the request of unions around the world include urgent appeals for online solidarity with trade unions in Pakistan, Israel, Europe, Kazakhstan, Jordan, Ukraine, India, and in Albania. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start reporting for Radio Labor. Now here are the low tide drifters with every stitch.
There are tears tonight in DACA. See the workers in the streets. of clothing someone sweats away unseen while the tangled threads of justice unravel at the seams from the slums of New York City to the streets of Bangladesh hundred years of struggle and it ain't over yet no hundred years of struggle And that's it. International labor news you can use. You can find our features and daily newscasts at radiolabor.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radiolabor. I'm Mark Belanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity.
So there you had Radio Labor, our worldwide labor report, concentrating this week on workers in Bangladesh. Uh, that last song you heard, of course, was De Colores, the theme song or the song of the United Farm Workers of the labor movement beginning in the ninth, well, beginning long ago. But uh, <clears throat> finally making a union that lasted in the, in the middle 60s with the work of Dolores Huerta and Teresa Chavez and uh, hundreds of thousands, millions of supporter of their supporters all around the world, de colores. And we had Lalo Guerrero, <coughs> immortal singer, Mexican singer, Mexican-American singer, uh, singing a corrido of Cesar Chavez. Corrido is like a ballad and uh, about the inspiring leadership that Cesar Chavez provided. See here. Let's see if we can get a little background music going while I talk about Chavez, because uh, Chavez and uh, the people who worked with him really caused a revolution in the labor movement in the United States, in California certainly, but in the United States.
Okay, Cesar Chavez. Background music. Um, first of all, the struggle for justice and a fair wage and humane working conditions didn't begin with Cesar Chavez in 1965. It began, um, well, we can go back to 1826, where Native Americans at San Juan Capistrano uh, stopped working because they were being treated so badly there by the, the missionaries and the priests and the soldiers who worked with them. But uh, we can mark uh, 1903, the problem in California's fields has always been when the food is ready to be harvested, who's going to do it? It's got to happen quickly. All the different crops have to be harvested when they're ready or else they'll rot in the field. So, growers needed workers, farm workers, and they, at first they imported them from different countries, partly to pit them against one another so they would compete and work cheaper. Um, the year 1903, we could begin, sort of a random beginning of strike in Oxnard, California, in the beet fields there, where Mexican and Japanese workers joined together to defeat uh, management, the, the owner's uh, initiative to cut their wages, in effect, and take away their more or less elected contractors, native contractors, and hire their own white contractors. So they went on strike, and they, the strike won. They were ra their wages were raised, and uh, they wanted to join the American Federation of Labor, but uh, Samuel Gompers, head of the, the labor, the AFL at that time, said they would never allow Mexican uh, Japanese workers alongside white workers. So racism there in the uh, labor movement. Unfortunately, racism <laughs> is no stranger to the labor movement, to the union movement. Uh, the next labor action was in 1913, a place called Wheatland, where owner of a, of a huge hop farm, had jobs for about a thousand people, but he put out ads all over the state to get people to come and show up. The more people who showed up, the more they could work against one another and lower the wages. Um, the workers showed up all right. Uh, the, camps that they were supposed to live in were substandard. There was no sewage. Uh, sickness broke out. 
They demanded a meeting with the owner. Uh, the owner showed up with some deputies and the sheriff and uh, shooting ensued. And a couple of deputies were killed. A couple of workers were killed. Two workers, Blackie Ford and, and Herman Sewer were arrested, even though they hadn't been there, didn't have guns. But they were arrested because they were members of the IWW, the International Workers of the World, um, a highly effective labor organization that confronted uh, corporate capitalism and, and uh, sought to organize all workers under one great big union in any case. These two men were arrested. They were tortured. Sir went crazy. Uh, they, the deputies poked them with needles and sharp, sharp things to keep them from going to sleep. Sir went crazy. Uh, there was a small adjustment upward of wages. The one strike didn't do much good in that sense. But it did show some labor organizing. And in the 30s, giant 18,000 cotton workers went on strike. Um, strike led by communist organizers in great part. Because the AFL, the president of the AFL thought that it was ridiculous to try to organize farm workers because they were migrants. They would move around the whole state. And uh, in the late 40s, there was another one, a, a strike at a giant plant, the DiGiorgio Company. And the, all through this time, the, the courts had been in favor, the courts and the government had been in favor of the growers and the farmers. In 1937, they shot some union organizers. No one was ever arrested. In 1948, they shot one of the leaders of the uh, National Farmers Union, National Farm Workers Union. No one was ever arrested. Eventually, the courts declared that the strike against the Giorgio was illegal because it was prejudiced against the owners. You got to imagine that. So, I mean, there's a whole background. One of the people who watched or worked on a, a farm in the area where, where all the labor action took place was a young man named Cesar Chavez. And uh, next week we'll talk a little bit more about Chavez and his life. But suffice to say that Chavez got the idea <coughs> of a farm workers union. And uh, he was working at the time for the Fellowship of Reconciliation, a Quaker organization, doing uh, voter registration in Oakland. And he met uh, Dolores Huerta, a young woman who'd been a school teacher. But she said that the kids, Mexican-American kids, the, grow, the farm worker kids kept coming to school dirty, without shoes, 
They would be punished for speaking Spanish in many places. So together, uh, Huerta and Cesar Chavez went to the Fellowship of Recreation to see if they could get help starting the Farm Workers Union, and they were turned down. So they decided to quit and do it themselves. And therein lies a tale. That's part one of the farm workers' story. And today, April 3rd, we remember the birthday of Cesar Chavez, March 31st, 1927. And like I say, next week, we'll go more into Chavez's biography, the things that motivated him and the things that limited him as well. and his work and Dolores Huerta's work. Listen to a union song here. Hold on. United Nations make a chain. Every link is freedom's name. Keep your hand on that gun. Hold on. Black and white is gonna meet. Keep your hand on that gun. Hold on. We've got to show him one more trick. Keep your hand on that gun. Hold on.
Chicago some years ago. I was invited to play at a nightclub. At a nightclub. Can you imagine that? You see me at a nightclub? The old quiet night up on Belmont Street, across from Cliff Raven's tattoo parlor. Well, I went up there at 3 o'clock in the afternoon to the quiet night because I was scared. Fought my way past the guard dogs, got up there. The janitor had taken the garbage out. He was in the big hall by himself, just sitting in the, just, just under the night, just the nightlight up on the stage. An older man, he was sitting there playing the Moonlight Sonata, beautifully, quietly. He stood in the shadows, he didn't know I was there. A great shock of white hair standing back on his head, deeply incised lines on his face. I looked closely and saw he was just playing with the one hand. There was a stump off to about here. Well, he began to pound the piano with one good hand, and in a rumbling baritone voice, started to sing Freiheit, Freedom, the song of the Tileman Brigade during the Spanish Civil War. The war that if we'd gotten involved in it, there might not have been a Second World War. He sang Los Cuatros Generales, the Harama Valley, White Cliffs of Gandesa, powerful music of the Spanish Civil War. Well, that was Eddie Belchowski. Eddie Belchowski had been a concert pianist, a brilliant pianist as a young man. But he went to join the Abraham Lincoln Brigade and went to Spain to fight against Franco and the fascists. Crossing the Abro River, he got his arm blown off. Well, they put him in the field hospital on morphine turned him into a junkie for the next 30 years of his life. He haunted the alleys of Chicago, a mad poet, a derelict, a drug addict, alcoholic. He began to put himself back together, got the job at the quiet night so he could practice the piano. Richard Harding was good about that. And not just to learn the songs of the Civil War, but he learned the Haydn's and Liszt's left-hand variations. He could play the Bach Chacon with one hand. His daughter, Raina, just sent me recordings, tapes that he made for her. I've never heard of him playing the whole, whole classical repertoire on the piano with one hand, Chopin. That was his favorite. Well, he taught me powerful things about endurance, about holding on, about holding on. I left Chicago. A week later, I got a call said Eddie Belchowski had died. So I sat down and I made him up a death song. A week later, I got a call from Eddie. First thing I asked him was, hey Ed, where are you calling from? Well, he said he was calling from Chicago. I said, hell, dead or in Chicago, it's all the same to me, fella. And a week after that, I was back at the quiet night, sitting on a bar stool with Eddie Belchowski himself, sitting across from me. Had a chance to sing him his death song. He was abused. But it was just a while ago that 
Ted Belchowski at the age of 74 was found on the subway tracks in Chicago. They just had a museum show of his art and poetry and music and recollections from old comrades all over the country. And, uh, and then they sang his death song. Taking rides on the side 
working in a barber shop, you may know how to cut hair. It may be somebody's mistress, maybe somebody's heir, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Yes, you're gonna have to serve. My sisters, oh my sisters, nous qui voulions poser image ineffaçable, comme un delta divin notre main sur le sable. Anna de Noailles. Dorothy Wordsworth, dying, did not want to read. I am too busy with my own feelings, she said. And all women who have wanted to break out of the prison of consciousness to sing or shout are strange monsters who renounce the treasure of their silence for a curious, devouring pleasure. Dickinson, Rossetti, Sappho, they all know it. Something is lost, strained, unforgiven in the poet. She abdicates from life, or like George Sand, suffers from the mortality in an immortal hand, loves too much, spends a whole life to discover she was born a good grandmother, not a good lover. Too powerful for men, Madame de Stael, too sensitive, Madame de Sévigné, who burdened where she meant to give. Delicate as that burden was and so supremely lovely, it was too heavy for her daughter, much too heavy. Only when she built inward, in a fearful isolation, did any one succeed or learn to fuse emotion with thought. Only when she renounced did Emily begin in the fierce, lonely light to learn to be. 
only in the extremity of spirit and the flesh and in renouncing passion did Sappho come to bless. Only in the farewells or in old age does sanity shine through the crimson stains of their mortality. And now we who are writing women and strange monsters still search our hearts to find the difficult answers, still hope that we may learn to lay our hands more gently and more subtly on the burning sands, to be through what we make more simply human, to come to the deep place where poet becomes woman, where nothing has to be renounced or given over in the pure light that shines out from the lover, in the warm light that brings forth fruit and flower, and that great sanity, that sun, the feminine power. The poet May Sarton there, <clears throat> writing about women writers and <clears throat> what they needed to do to break through and become creative people. May Sarton. Bob Dylan before that was a song we used to play all the time because it so clearly defines the choices we're faced in our society. You gotta serve somebody. Everything you do serves somebody. Every day you go to work, you serve somebody. Every day you make choices that serve corporate or the worker. When you have those choices, who's the worker for that? Utah Phillips with a story about a one-armed man who had lost part of his arm in the uh, Spanish Civil War. And finally, Hold On by the Union Boys. Hold on. They got it going on. Want to look now I want to play a uh, story, biography, about a woman named Jovita Ibar. Jovita Idar, Mexican-American activist and journalist in Texas. At a time when... Uh, the Texas Rangers more or less terrorized the Mexican community, hung people, hung Mexican, mostly young Mexican men. Uh, here's Jovita Ibar. And an educator and a feminist. She was always on the front lines of change. In 1914, Laredo, Texas, 29-year-old journalist Jovita Idar worked for the Spanish-language newspaper El Progreso, 
when it published an editorial criticizing U.S. military intervention in the Mexican Revolution. And for that, the Texas governor ordered the Texas Rangers to destroy El Progreso. They were a police force meant to protect the Anglo-Texan economic and political elites who would shoot first and ask questions later. But when they arrived, they found Jovita Idar standing proudly there, and she was not about to let them infringe upon their First Amendment rights as a free press. The Rangers said, please step aside. And I said, no, I'm standing here, and you cannot come in because it's against the law. A Mexican-American, Spanish-speaking, bilingual, brown woman stood up to the Texas Rangers at a time when they were committing terrible crimes against people of color and specifically ethnic Mexicans. Idar stood her ground and the Rangers left. But as her brother, Aquilino, later described, they returned early the next morning. They had hammers and uh, hammers, and they broke the press. They wrecked everything. Jovita Idar was born in Laredo in 1885, 40 years after Texas became a state. This territory that becomes the U.S. Southwest was actually part of Mexico. And you have the U.S.-Mexico War in the 1840s, which Mexico loses, and they have to give up about half of their sovereign territory to the United States territory we now know as Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, California, and parts of Colorado and Wyoming. So Texas, or Texas, was part of that Spanish-Mexican world. But regardless of how long Mexican-American families had been in the United States, they were often seen as foreigners in their own land. One of eight children, Idar grew up in an educated middle-class family with a strong sense of social justice. Her father was egalitarian in terms of women's rights. He believed that women had a right to have a political voice, and he was very proud of Jovita Idar, proud of all of her knowledge, all of her education, and her daring. After attending Methodist schools, Idar became a teacher in 1903. Ethnic Mexican children had no choice but to attend these schools that were second-rate in every way. The buildings were falling apart, they didn't have school supplies, and the history that they were learning taught them Mexicans were the bad guys, and David Crockett and other Anglo-Americans were the good guys. Jovita Idar quickly grew frustrated with the lack of resources and support. Mexican children in Texas need an education. But if they are taught the biography of Washington, but not Hidalgo, the exploits of Lincoln, but not Juarez, that child will be indifferent to his heritage. She believed that she would have better luck helping La Raza, Mexican-American and Mexican immigrant people elsewhere. And that's when she decided to join her father and her siblings in human and civil rights activism through journalism. 
Idar became a reporter for the family's weekly Spanish-language newspaper, La Cronica. She used the pseudonym in order to not be criticized for participating in what was considered to be unladylike critiques of the political culture in Texas at the time. The focus of Jovita's reporting was racism, segregation, poverty, being bilingual, anti-Mexican hate, women, access to democratic institutions. It's like she could have been alive today. My name is Maria Hinojosa, and I'm the anchor and executive producer of Latino USA and of In the Thick. I was the first ever Latina hired at NPR in 1985 in the newsroom. Then I was the first Latina correspondent hired at CNN and at PBS. Right now, I'm one of the few Latinas running a nonprofit independent newsroom in the United States. The number of Latinas in America's newsrooms is still very small. Just over 2% in newspapers, about 4% in radio, and about 8% in television news. So journalism has been one of the slowest institutions to change and diversify and have real inclusion and equity. In the early 20th century, we have essentially the creation of Jaime Pro or Juan Pro, which is the Mexican-American equivalent of Jim Pro. Signs that stated, no Mexicans or dogs allowed were everywhere. Less known is the unfortunate reality that ethnic Mexican men were also lynched. Some people were burned alive, dragged, across town. Really horrific ways of killing people, mutilating their bodies to intimidate ethnic Mexican people so that they would not vote, so that they would not complain. In 1911, following the brutal lynching of a 14-year-old boy in Thorndale, Texas, Idar and her family organized a conference that kick-started the modern Mexican-American civil rights movement. The first Mexicanist Congress El Primer Congreso Mexicanista lasted several days, and it was basically a human rights congress that attracted leaders from the United States and Mexico who wanted an end to the discrimination and the lynchings. Shortly after the Congress, Idar founded the League of Mexican Women and became its first president. The organization's main causes were women's suffrage and quality education for Tejano children. We want our work to be significant, contributing to the formation of character and the cultivation of the minds of future generations. She was in favor of women's rights to vote and to participate in the economy. One of the most significant roles that Jovita had was to invite ethnic Mexican women to participate. At a time when many Mexican-American and Mexican immigrant women would have found it challenging to step into a public role, to be a part of the women's liberation process. The Mexican Revolution began in 1910 and spread to Texas border regions by 1914. La Cronica ceased publication and Idar joined a nursing unit for the Revolutionary Army. La Cruz Blanca the White Cross founded by her best friend, Leonor Villegas de Magnon. And they're in the middle of battles trying to save men, bandaging up, sending them back into the battlefield, all in the name of bringing democracy to Mexico. 
When the mutilated bodies of the soldiers were brought to my door, my heart jumped in volcanic upheaval. And from that moment, I felt that the fate and duties of my life had transformed. After her service in the White Cross, Idar returned to journalism, writing for various Spanish-language newspapers and creating her own in 1916, titled Evolución. I bought a press worth more than $1,000 and plenty of type. I can make a seven-column newspaper and will start soon. Her legacy is teaching us to be fearless. Being a Latina journalist in the United States of America means that the way you approach journalism is going to be different and distinct from other journalists. We actually have played a central role in the narrative of this country. We don't get a lot of play. We're not running the big newspapers of record, but our voices and our perspectives really matter. Jovita Idar handed over the operation of Evolución to her brother Eduardo when she and her husband moved to San Antonio in 1921. There, Idar helped undocumented workers obtain naturalization papers after the Border Patrol was created in 1924. She also founded a free nursery school and tutored young children. She died in 1946 at age 60. She used her voice to encourage women to be politically involved within the American system, to be proactive, to join organizations, to seek an education, to craft a better future for their children. And she devoted her entire life to that project. Women recognized their rights, proudly raised their chins, and faced the struggle. The times of humiliation have passed. Women are no longer men's servants, but their equals, their partners. Short bio there of Jovita <clears throat> Idar. Crusading journalist, Latina in Texas in the uh, early 1900s when uh, there was basically a terrorist campaign against uppity Mexicans and Mexican-Americans by the Texas Rangers. I used to read about the Texas Rangers used to watch them on TV. They were good guys. Joe McRae was a Texas Ranger. Here's a little bio of Cesar Chavez, and then we'll get on to our campus crusaders. At Cash Creek Casino Resort. First, we have to uh, avoid... This advertisement for a resort, huh? Cesar Estrada Chavez, 
an American civil rights activist and labor leader, was born in Yuma, Arizona on March 31, 1927. The Chavez family lost their Arizona homestead in the Great Depression and in the late 1930s moved to Northern California. Caesar and his family became migrant farm workers thrust into the industrialized agriculture of California. Cesar dropped out of school after the eighth grade to help support his family by working in the fields. Caesar joined the Navy right after World War II and he saw places he never would have seen. So it did open his eyes up to the world very much. After the Navy, Chavez returned to the fields and became a grassroots organizer for a Latino civil rights group. He then left the group and formed the National Farm Workers Association, now known as the United Farm Workers of America, with the goal of unionizing farm workers. Caesar believed that the movement he founded had to be more than just a union that was solely concerned with improving wages, hours, and working conditions, although the UFW certainly did that. But it also needed to address the crippling dilemmas that farm workers face in the community after they came home from work. Most people were poor, they didn't have access to good housing or health care or education. Chavez was adamant that his new union follow a strict policy of using only nonviolent tactics as a means of negotiation. While the organization was still in its infancy, UFW embarked upon one of the most influential boycotts in U.S. history, the boycott of all California table grapes. The grape boycott really took off in 68. Caesar had studied history. He knew that for 100 years, farm worker strikes were brutally crushed and that the agricultural industry, which in California is one of the richest and most powerful industries in the state, controlled much of rural California. So what Caesar needed to do was take the fight from the fields where the odds were stacked against the farm workers and move it to the cities where the farm workers at least had a chance. Over the next few years, led by Cesar Chavez, the farm workers would boycott, protest, march, and fast their way to a collective bargaining agreement, which guaranteed field workers, among other things, increased pay and the right to unionize. He was responsible for a lot of the labor codes that we see today, the protections, the benefits, but the basic right to organize and affiliate. As the head of the United Farm Workers of America, labor rights was not the only cause championed by Chavez. Caesar's commitment to social justice went far beyond the farm workers. In the 1960s, he was a strong and vocal opponent of the Vietnam War. In the 1970s, Caesar was an early and vocal supporter of gay rights. Also not a popular position, especially at that time, among his own constituency. Cesar Chavez died in his sleep on April 23, 1993. He was survived by his wife Helen, their eight children, and 31 grandchildren. In 1994, he was posthumously awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by President Bill Clinton. In 1975, there was a reporter with a national news magazine following Caesar around for several days, rallies, marches, picket lines. And in an interview, she asked him, what accounts for all the affection and respect that farm workers show you in public? And Caesar paused for a moment, and then he smiled his easy smile, and he said, the feeling is mutual.
Okay, um, that was a little biography of Cesar Chavez. Right now we have on the line our campus correspondence. Are you there, you guys? Yes, right here. Okay. Um, we're, we're, <coughs> we're celebrating, among other things, the birthday of Cesar Chavez on March 31st. But um, I asked you guys to come today to talk about um, COVID vaccinations, okay? Um, the, the national media is sort of all gung-ho about vaccinations, and they're putting out stories about how successful it is and how wonderful it is and how, you know, we can all go back to normal lives pretty soon, even though there are 70 or 80,000 new, new cases. But I wanna, I, what I want to do is reflect there's a definitely a debate going on about this question, about vaccinations. So I wanted to hear what you guys, your guys take on it, okay? Yeah, take a whack at it. All right. So uh, there's a lot of controversy. It's, you know, it's, it's being talked about a lot as to who are these anti-vaxxers and, and, and what's wrong with them and all that stuff. And I think that um, it's, it's pretty dangerous to, to uh, lump people up into categories and not have a conversation. So it's really good that we're having a conversation. Um, uh, because it seems like any sort of reservation you have towards uh, towards the idea of um, privatized vaccination is is really it's controversial. Like people just look at you as if you're a murderer, even though you're the first person to wear three masks out in February uh, before anybody like heard about it, right? So the idea is that here is that uh, no one is an anti-vaxer, um, and we really need to just have a conversation. Um, about economics, right? So having being studying economics, you've got rules for perfect competition, and then you've also got like the rational choice theory, which is which is supposed to be like imperfect capitalism. Yeah, it's, it's, it, this is yeah, th this is how as capitalists we understand how everything works, right? So Suppose. supposedly, <laughs> so if if you're if you're a consumer of rational choice, which is what our economic theories, like our whole economic foundation, depends upon. Um, you don't randomly a you don't randomly select products off the shelf. Uh, this is straight off um, Investopedia. Um, you use a logical decision-making process that takes into account the costs and benefits of various options, weighing the options against each other. Okay. The rules for perfect competition. Another theory are that one of them is that there's a large number of buyers and sellers, buyers and sellers, and then the next one is perfect knowledge of the market. Right. They're all informed. This is right out of Milton Friedman, right? Like yes. Yeah, exactly. And win. living in America and being a capitalist in America, I uh, choose the car I drive. I choose where I want to eat, where I want to where I want to give myself uh, all these, you know, health, health diseases. I, yeah, I, have, I have options. What I want to wear, where, you know, where I want to go, what mall I want to shop at. What you want to watch. I'm, right. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I have... And can I say yeah, something? you can come in real quick. It's also like if those men who run the world always tell us, "Oh, that's capitalism. That's capitalism." You know, 
well, then why can't we tell them that's capitalism too? Uh-huh. Right. No. So I, okay. my knowledge, my knowledge of the industry that now I'm shopping for vaccines. Now, don't get me wrong. We're not anti-vaxxers here. We're, we want to get the vaccination. We're waiting for the right time. We want to come back to that. We're waiting for the right time because we're shopping, right? So we have knowledge of the market because that's what we're supposed to do in this capitalistic environment. And the knowledge of the market says that these oversight on these companies is very minimal. Like, don't forget Purdue Pharma. They drug most of us. They drugged a lot of us here. Um, they, oh, yeah. And, and they use, as, as a vessel who they use, they use the glorious doctors of the American Medical Association to push the product, right? Because, you know, the doctors are the ones telling you, take take, uh, take Cody, take, take whatever it is, take, take our Purdue Pharma drug. So we have that scandal. And that messed up a lot of lives. And we all know people who are affected by it, right? So here's, so now I'm, I'm trying to set precedent towards the doubt. Right, so, so my doubt comes from there. Well, that's one area where my doubt comes from. Let's talk about something else. Johnson & Johnson, we all love our babies, right? We, <laughs> we, we love drying their, the weed. We love drying them up. We love we, we talcum don't, we don't powder, right? Yeah, talcum powder, we right? We love taking care of our babies. We love you know doing all this stuff, and we definitely, definitely wouldn't put anything on their bodies that could give them cancer. And uh, definitely not knowingly, even not no, knowingly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we wouldn't do that. We so, wouldn't do you know, that. Now, guess, guess we have a one-shot vaccination by Johnson Johnson. You hear that? One shot. I take supply chain management. There's things called you have to figure out how you're going to market your product, right? A one-shot product, a one-shot vaccination is just a way to beat the competition. So now, okay, we have we have competition, but we don't have enough sellers. We have AstraZeneca, we have Novavax, and we have Johnson Johnson. What we're doing is we – have seen as we've set the precedent we've seen that there's reason to doubt the industry there's not enough oversight in this industry and and we are just waiting we're waiting you know we 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 can wear our masks we can social distance we can take vaccine we can take tests the day before we meet anybody um but if you if you want me to pick between johnson and johnson and two other companies i'll tell you that milton friedman tells me there's not enough sellers in the market and rational choice theory tells me um that uh, i should not be taking the first thing off the shelf okay okay and so my opinion is even though you know my opinion also is more economic i guess and rational as opposed to all the other thoughts or ideas that are out there. Um, I think that another important thing that should be looked at just in terms of ethics and everything are two things. One is the fact of liability and that back in, I think, 2010 or a few years back, basically, they passed a law that made it so that you can't sue any vaccine companies, basically, and you can't get money. So it's like even these people aren't going to be held liable if anything bad does happen. And it's all in their favor to get the stuff out. There's a lot of, you know, very conservative, very um, capitalist, not even, you know, a lot of people like to be negative about people of color and say that it's, oh, people of color are so out there, you know, immigrants or whatever. They think there's all these crazy conspiracy theories, Um, you know, and I wouldn't discredit those people ever 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 because you know here business insider is saying you know what there's a vaccine industrial complex and we need to watch out for that because suddenly 
the shares for Moderna go up from eighteen point nine dollars to one hundred and eighty nine dollars <laughs> in one quarter. And people are, you know, making money off of that. So you're really gonna tell me something that's now a government mandated thing that you can for sure make money off of and is not even being like watched over and there's no consequences and there's already precedence for this. Like yeah, what? So I, I wanted to add, so it's that, so basically I can start my own company, cut all the corners I want, and the government's going to market my product to the, to the whole nation, right? It sounds like I it's should be getting easy. into, it's not, yeah. you know, I should be getting into that, right? Uh-huh. It's, it's, too, it's too easy. You know, I can cut all the corners I want, and the government will still, will still market my product. No, and you know what? I'm really surprised at how brainwashed people are because people that I respect and thought are critical thinkers are just going into this propaganda. You know what I mean? There's propaganda everywhere. All the time, even in my classes, they're constantly telling me, oh, take the vaccine, take the vaccine. And I get it, but we need to be rational. So we can't all give in to fear and let these companies, which we know a million times over, they've been taking advantage of us and do that. Like, we can't do it. And my body is sacred, like, and it's so rude of people to get mad at me and think, oh, whatever, when it's like, that's my body. Why wouldn't I protect my own body? What respect do I have for myself? Uh So, no, I'm an educated person, and this is what I think. And I'm not um, an immigrant. I'm not some, you know, old person who is of color from any, you know. I am an educated woman, and I I don't think that people should be discredited. Okay, so... You think at some point in the future you would, yes, you will become vaccinated. Yes, I'm waiting for the right vaccine, and okay. yep. I'm willing to be vaccinated. And what would that be? Scandals, scandals, and lawsuits in the past. So, um, so this is from an insider in the pharmaceutical industry. I won't give out names. Um, he works in it, but the faith is low because. Uh, it's just the way the way things have to be accelerated, right? You 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 you're bound to step over. Uh, you're bound to step over um, a, few, a few steps, and and there's some talk about it being the emergency. It's not it's not fully FDA approved. It's the emergency label of an FDA approved, and that means a lot of different things. And so, uh, just going back to being informed consumers, we are not people who don't want to take the vaccine. We believe in vaccines. And we believe we also we just we believe in ethical corporate ethics. We believe in moral moral hazard is a possibility. Social responsibility is yeah, a yeah. must. So that's the type of consumer we are. You know, call us, you know, a little hippie kind. You know, like a little. I know, like natural. Yeah, like we're just waiting. <laughs> yeah, you know, we're just waiting. And you know, also another thing, don't misunderstand people of color, minorities that. You know, or, or anybody that says, you know, I'm a little hesitant because there can be a lot of different reasons. Why they why they would be hesitant and they yeah. could just you know you know deep down they they, they want to do it obviously they just they just they, they don't know where to put their faith and right. and I you know we're good to be in a position of education where we can do our research go online look at SEC reports look at annual reports see what these companies where their CEOs are if they care or not and then be like hey you know if I'm gonna put my trust in a vaccination it's gonna be this one or that one but it's not gonna be Johnson Johnson yeah. I want to say one more thing. Sorry. Go ahead, please. Go ahead. Just one more thing. I think that it's almost a little racist of people to do that, to say, oh, theories, these people from other countries, or whatever. You know, and it's like, dude, how dare you? There are lots.
lawsuits out in India, Latin America, Africa, all over the world in the third world against these companies who go there and do these trials. You don't think some of those people can use their own eyes, ears, brain experience and say, no, I don't want something because I don't trust it. They've done nothing to gain our trust. And how dare people say that about them when they're just protecting their body and their family. That's the last thing they have in this world. And they're just trying to protect themselves. Okay. It's really sad. We got to go. But um, what would it take then? Okay. What, what signals, what would signal to you that a vaccine is okay and you would go ahead and take it? You know, it's, uh, look, so don't get us wrong. And that's, that's the problem is that we are sort of laid back in the sense that, you know, there's a time aspect to it. So every day we wait, we feel better. Okay. And there's also like, well, how urgent is it? We're not going out. We're not doing things. We're not mandatorily meeting with people in classes. You know, well, if we go out to a social place, we'll take a test. We, yeah. we double mask it up. We yeah. put a shield up on the face. You know, we're good. So we'll just wait it out as long as we can. If that's six months, that's fine. You okay. know what I mean? All right. Ideally, you know, in my mind, it's like, you know, at the very least 2022. Okay. Very good. And I really appreciate your coming on and um, discussing this stuff and <clears throat> letting everyone know what your reasoning is. Um, yeah, no, thank you. Thanks for letting us talk. Yeah, of course. It's important. I bet you a lot of people feel the way we do, too. I think, I think that's definitely true, but there's just been a, an avalanche of, uh, on, on, you know, the major, the big, big news uh, channels about, right. you know, and this is like it, you know, you got to do we this. We understand that, because you have to. I mean, eventually everybody has to be vaccinated. You know, yeah, and, 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 and mainstream media has its role to build the narrative in a way, even though it's good or bad, like it has a role to make everybody understand this is what we're trying to do, get with the program and one way or another. You know. scroll and it's okay. All right. I'm sorry. I'd like to continue this. Um, uh, yeah, no, definitely. Very yeah, interesting. Um, I'm going to have to go, but I, I do want to appreciate that you're coming on, and we'll talk next weekend on another issue that's before yeah. the American public and before working people. So thank you Yemen and thank you Vita. Looking okay. forward to that Bill. Thank you for having us on your program. Okay, my pleasure. Thank okay. you. Bye. Okay, so that was um, our campus correspondence from UC Davis and uh, talking about questions that they have about the vaccine. Uh, this is Labor and Love Radio signing off on another Saturday morning. I'm going to hand you over right now to Mr. Flat Black. Fat. Fat Black. She, flat Black Plastic. <clears throat> Scott O. Walker and his uh, selection of wax, they used to call it. Wax. Flat Black Plastic. Remember. One person gets a dollar they didn't work for. Someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. Remember, 
Never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. It's only a waste of time. And remember, you don't have a seat at the table where you work. You're on the menu. Hi, everybody. Have a good week. Yeah. Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of mutiny.
Jays proudly presents 20 Lopez. America, automobiles in America, Romeo, still in America, 
Ya ven. 